Good morning, everybody. Good to see you. Yeah, in two weeks, uh, if you show up at 11, you'll be late, really late, and we will make fun of you. No, we won't do that. Uh, but we're hoping that that may move even more people into the second service on Sunday, and I think it'll work out pretty well. So want to welcome all of you here. Welcome to those of you who are online, watching online, and I want to encourage you to open your Bibles, if you would, please. Turn to 2 Timothy chapter 4. And 2 Timothy is one of the little tiny books way towards the end of your Bible. So if you start all the way on the right and work your way back, you'll run into 2 Timothy in there. It's in Timothy and Titus and, and all those that are known as the pastoral epistles. Um, so today we're launching a brand new series, and the series is called Room of Marvels. And so you're peeking in a little bit through the keyhole there as to what's in that room. And it's a series on foundational Bible doctrine. So I'm going to introduce a series today. I'm not just going to introduce a series. I want to talk about a few things, give you a little quick preview about some of the things we're going to be talking about. I'm going to explain why it is that we need, in the words of C.S. Lewis, we need stronger spells. We need stronger spells if we're going to hold on to our faith and pass on our faith to others. We're going to talk about how many people today are walking away from their churches. A lot of people um, in somewhat alarming numbers are walking away from their churches, even before COVID. And yet it doesn't necessarily mean that there are less believers in those churches. So we'll talk about that just a little bit. And then we'll see why, and we'll spend quite a bit more time on this, why just focusing on truth is not enough. Yes, truth, absolutely, absolutely necessary. But focusing on the truth of truth is not enough. All right, we'll see why that's so. So we're going to start with prayer. Uh, prayer of illumination today is based on Psalm 119, as we ask the Holy Spirit to illumine our hearts and our minds to hear His Word. Heavenly Father, as we look to Your Word given to us, teach us to seek You with our whole hearts. By Your Holy Spirit, help us to listen and to obey. Lead us to rejoice in Your truth as You open our eyes to the wonder of Your ways. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, uh, Justin Bailey, I'm reading a book by him right now, uh, that uh, very, very interesting book, and we'll introduce some of the ideas that he gives in that book. So Justin Bailey has been a pastor in Filipino-American, Korean-American, Caucasian-American churches, and then he went back to get his PhD. He's teaching right now. He's a professor and an author. He's a professor in a university, and the thing that he says propelled him to go back to school after pastoring for some years was what he was sensing was the increasing fragility of people's faith in his congregations and his own. His own faith seemed to be more fragile than ever. And so he recalls, at the beginning of his book, he recalls a conversation that he had with one of his students at church who came up to him and he said, this encapsulates what I'm talking about. Here's what the student said. When we're in church and I'm listening to the preaching, it's like you're weaving a spell. I believe and the world makes sense to me. I believe and the world makes sense to me. But then I walk out the door of the church and it's like the spell is broken. So there's another way that you can put this, actually. The student could have also said, when I'm out in the world, in my daily life, it's like it casts a spell on me and I find it very hard to believe what the church teaches. But then I come into church and the spell is broken. And in actuality, it does go both ways. And I'll show you that in a little bit, the way the C.S. Lewis uh, talks about this. So 
our cultural moment, the moment that we're in, in the culture that we live in, in the world that we live in, our cultural moment casts an increasingly strong spell on us and on our children not to believe. Keeping faith may be more challenging now than at any other time in the history of our country. Um, that student, Bailey's student, was expressing what's true for all of us. It's hard to believe out there, out there, what seems plausible in here. Now, just to be clear, I say in the history of our country because uh, there are greater challenges happening all over the world to people's faith. I mean, there's people that showing up to church would lead to the end of their life. And this isn't like an occasional thing. This is maybe one of the worst times in the world for believers in many parts of the world. And so I, I'm talking about in this country, it has become increasingly difficult, maybe one of the most difficult times to hold on to faith. And it's not because we're suffering uh, for our faith. It's because a Christian, a biblical Christian faith is increasingly at odds with the prevailing culture. The way we see things is increasingly at odds with the way we see culture. Now, some people may argue with that statement, and, and if you were to say, I'm not sure I agree with you, Henry, because I think it's harder to keep the faith when it's easy to keep the faith, because then you don't know whether it's real or not. And I wouldn't, I wouldn't disagree with you, but I would still say this is one of the most challenging times to keep the faith. And by keeping faith, I mean three things. Keeping faith means holding on to our beliefs. It also means living as followers of Christ, which means living by his kingdom values. And then keeping the faith means passing on our faith to the next generation and beyond, keeping it going within the generations of our families. It's harder to hold on to belief. It's harder to hold on to belief in Christ. It's harder to live by kingdom values. It's harder in many ways or more challenging, maybe not harder, more challenging to pass on our faith because the prevailing culture is at odds with the way we think in a big, big way. All right. So the evidence for this, I could offer a lot of evidence. I'm just going to mention a couple of things. The evidence of the difficulties of keeping faith right now in our culture. One, from um, the drastic reductions. There's drastic reductions in church attendance even before COVID. So people are leaving in large numbers. Uh, any kind of church attendance saying, no, I don't belong to any church. I don't go to church anymore. And then, unfortunately, a lot of the young adults who grew up in church in alarming numbers, are dropping off. And there's no signs. We don't know what the future holds, but there's no signs of them coming back. Keeping faith is difficult. It's becoming increasingly difficult. Now, many people believe that the percentage of Christians or the number of Christians that are in church hasn't really changed that much. And the argument is made by many that the reason for that is that a lot of the people that have left are people who are identified as, by some people, as culture Christians or cultural Christians. A cultural Christian is someone who goes to church because it's the thing to do. And as going to church becomes less and less the thing to do, and as it's actually maybe doesn't help you at all if people know you're going to church, and there are parts in this, especially parts of this country, where you would be considered rather strange if you still participate uh, in a church uh, service, 
so there's no advantage to it, those people have, are the people that are leaving. Uh, I agree with that perspective, although, as I said last hour, I, I, um, I'm not sure that uh, I don't trust myself completely. Um, one of the problems we have in our world is we, and it's always been this way, but uh, social media makes it even worse, is we love to hold on to theories that affirm what we already believe. And if we don't question those things enough, we can get deceived pretty, pretty quickly. And so that explanation makes all the sense in the world to me, but I like it. It fits. And so I'm like, maybe I like it a little too much. Maybe I need to question it a little bit. So just put that, put that out there for you to think about. Um, but I still think in this cultural moment, it's, it's pretty challenging to hold on to faith. So Justin Bailey, who tells the story of that student, uh, argues that what we need are stronger spells. That's what we need today. The idea comes from, from C.S. Lewis. And uh, the couple places that he talks about where that idea comes from, one is from one of the Chronicles of Narnia, uh, the silver chair, where two children are taken by a witch into a, an underground realm that she rules, and she casts a spell on them, and the spell is to make them believe that everything that happens above ground you know, from their past, never existed. It's in their imaginations. And so when memories come, what she tells them, that's all in your imagination. And, and yeah, while this idea of this wonderful grand lion, Aslan, is, is beautiful, and this thing you call the sun, there is no sun. There's only the lamp. You, you, you want there to be something else, but you need to, you need to just face reality. You need to get over those childhood dreams of yours and you need to realize this underground realm, this is all, all that there is. So here's a conversation uh, from the book between the kids and the witch. So one of the kids says, I suppose the other world must all be a dream. Yes, it is all a dream, said the witch. Yes, all a dream, said Jill. There never was such a world, said the witch. No, said Jill and Scrub. Never was such a world. There never was any world but mine, said the witch. There never was any world but you, the children said. All right. We need a stronger spell to overcome the witch's spell. Now, I want to have a little word with parents here just for a moment. Um, a few years ago, it's about five years ago, I introduced an article uh, to one of my sermons, an article that talked about whether we should be indoctrinating our children or not. And the uh, the title of the article basically said, yeah, Christians ought to be indoctrinating their children. Now, that's not usually a term that we use, and we might a little bit get a little repulsed by the idea of indoctrinating, but he says, here's, here's what indoctrination means. It means to instruct in a doctrine, principle, or ideology, to instruct, especially to imbue with a specific partisan or biased belief or point of view. That's what it means to indoctrinate. Another definition is to teach or to inculcate. So indoctrinating our kids means to inculcate them with faith. Now, everyone, and this is where the author goes with this, he says everyone is getting indoctrinated all the time. The question is not whether you're getting indoctrinated or not. The question is who's doing the indoctrination. That's what you have to be careful for. And the author gives a, an illustration that you might remember if you were here five years ago of going to a uh, baby shower uh, 
where his, um, for, for a friend, and, or a friend's child, and he, go, he goes to this baby shower, and they are all, this family are all Texas A&M fans, and he's not. And so everything is like paraphernalia for Texas A&M. I mean, little jerseys for the baby, hats for the baby, shoes for the baby, everything is Texas A&M. And he says their love for A&M was obviously just oozed from their pores. And they want to inculcate as early as possible this new little baby to being a fan of A&M. So I said last hour, um, I'm a Vikings fan, but Green Bay fans do it better than we do. (laughs) I don't know what it is, but they do. And uh, they do it way better than we do. I, I, and I did add to my son, I said, uh, I think it's because we look at our kids and we say, do we want to put them through all the pain? But uh, uh, anyway, so what do you love so much that it oozes through your pores? And would you be able to say as a parent that your love for Jesus is oozing through your pores so much that you want to inculcate a love for God, a love for Jesus in your kids. Do you, even, do you even know what to pass on to your kids? Okay, the pretty easy football team, just get them the jerseys and all that kind of stuff, but do you know what to pass on to your kids? Not just by bringing them to church, it's a, such a small slice of life, but all week long and all the other hours of the week. Do you know what to pass on to your kids? Do you know what it is that you believe and have an just a love for what it is that you believe that you could pass it on to your children. Well, this series is hopefully going to help you as parents do that. And and, um, I've also got a blog post that I I posted this morning on some resources for, for younger kids, for families with younger kids. And so, you know, we've been talking about the Emblems book. This is basically for 10 and over. I'll talk more about that later. But uh, there's some resources there for families with younger kids, and, and it's henry-williams.net, henry-williams.net. You can look that up for some resources. So, um, the indoctrination of our kids is pervasive. So, C.S. Lewis talks about this in what is considered probably the greatest sermon he ever preached, a sermon called The Weight of Glory, and then some of that with some other essays were collected in... Uh, a book by the same name. So this is what C.S. Lewis says. He says, do you think I'm trying to weave a spell? So as he's been talking about the glory of God, he goes, do you think I've been trying to weave a spell? Perhaps I am. But remember your fairy tales. Spells are used for breaking enchantments as well as for inducing them. And you and I have a need for the strongest spell that can be found to wake us from the evil enchantments of the worldliness, which has been laid upon us for nearly a hundred years. What is it? Almost our whole education has been directed to silencing the shy, persistent inner voice. Almost all of our modern philosophies have been devised to convince us that the good of man is to be found on this earth. In other words, that this is all there is. Now, he preaches back in... I'm not quite sure when, but I'm going to say the latest probably would have been the 1950s. Uh, that's like 70 years ago. And he said for 100 
years, our philosophies and our education system have been calibrated to teach us that this world is all there is. And if you think that he could see that back in the 50s, we can see it everywhere now, even in greater living color. He's saying that for, for all this time, we have been indoctrinated, and we need a stronger spell in order to overcome it. Now, if you think it's strange language in church to talk about uh, strong spells, uh, I want to take you just in a moment here to a passage. The Apostle Paul is writing a church that is one of the churches that he founded. So he went there, shared the gospel with him. He was beaten up. I mean, it's it's a really interesting story, but he gets there. He's preaches the gospel to them. They come to faith. He goes on to start other churches. Other people come in, and they begin to teach that the gospel is not enough. The gospel is not enough. You need something more. God's grace is not enough. You need to also keep all the laws of the Old Testament. And he's, like, he sees it for what it is. He says, this, this, if you follow this, you will be leaving the gospel. I mean, you will be exiting the gospel. You'll be joining something else. You'll have left Christianity. And so he uses very strong language. This is one of the times that he uses very strong language in this letter. It's not the only time. Uh, But this is what he says to them. You foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you before your very eyes? Jesus Christ was clearly portrayed as crucified. Who has bewitched you? The stronger spell that we need um, is found in what the Bible calls sound doctrine. I want to show you that here uh, over the next few moments. So the Apostle Paul, towards the end of his life, Galatians, probably one of his earliest letters. Towards the end of his life, he wrote 1st, 2nd Timothy, Titus, uh, probably shortly before he died. He's writing to his mentees, Timothy and Titus. In 2nd Timothy chapter 4, He's uh, writing to Timothy, and he's giving him instructions as a Christian leader, and here's what he says to Timothy, beginning in verse 1. In the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who will judge the living and the dead, in view of his appearing and his kingdom, I give you this charge. Preach the word. Be prepared in season and out of season. Correct, rebuke, and encourage with patience and careful instructions. Just want to stop there for a moment. So you're going to hear this kind of language in other places. Rebuke sounds like a really strong word. Correct sounds like a really strong word. But just notice that when it's done in the way that the Apostle Paul is calling for, he says, with great patience and careful instruction. For the time will come when people will not put up with sound doctrine. Instead, to suit their own desires... They will gather around them a great number of teachers to say what their itching ears want them want to hear. They will turn their ears away from the truth and turn aside to myths. But you, keep your head in all situations. Endure hardship. Do the work of an evangelist. Discharge all the duties of your ministry. Now, as you read through this book, what you discover is everything he's describing there was happening already in that church. This isn't talking about our day exclusively. It's not like, oh, look, we have reached that day. (laughs) No. 
he speaks of it as already happening in his day. We are already in what the Apostle Paul calls the last days. And it started after Christ ascended, the last days began. And we're living in that. But it speaks to us in a fresh way now. Now, doctrine, sound doctrine, it means teaching or instruction or theology. And for it to be sound means it aligns with what the apostles taught. And that's what you'll see in Paul, constantly talking about alignment with the teaching of the apostles who received that from Christ. So in Titus 1.9, he says, he's instructing Titus, and he says, An elder must hold firmly to the trustworthy message as it has been taught so that he can encourage others by sound doctrine and refute those who oppose it with patience. Right? With careful instruction. Uh, in 2 Timothy, earlier in the letter from what we read, what you heard from me keep as a pattern of sound teaching with faith and love in Jesus Christ. All right, in this series, we're going to look at what the Bible teaches on eight foundational topics or doctrines. And so the eight topics are the doctrine of God and humanity, sin. One, each, each one of these we're going to spend one week. The doctrine of Christ, the doctrine of the Holy Spirit, the doctrine of salvation, of the church, and of the last things. We're going to do it in a very unique way. So I've been talking about it for the last six or seven weeks we've been around here. We're going to do it uh, by interacting with this book, Emblems of the Infinite King. uh, And the subtitle is Enter the Knowledge of God. It's a book on theology, what in theological circles is called systematic theology, where you cover these topics that we're covering in here. And it's written for a 10-year-old and above. All right, so that means I can understand it <laughs> and not like have to read it 17 times to, to understand what it's, what it's saying. So it, there's a plot that's going on in this book. It's not really clearly stated, so I'm, I may be adding a little bit more than that is actually there. But I want to give you a plot so that you get something out of it because you're going to have assignments from this book each, uh, each week. And so here's, here's the, the basic idea if you want to get a sense of what's happening in this book. So the basic idea is you're living in a fortress or castle. You're um, like, like the kids in that, you know, they're in an underground realm. You're in a fortress. Um, and in that fortress, what you've been told, what you've been indoctrinated with, is that this is all there is. You're looking around and this is, this is all there is. So you're in a fortress and you're under a spell that makes you believe this life um, in the fortress is all that there is. But into the fortress comes a mysterious someone called the key keeper. And he holds a special key in his hand and the key lets you into a room. And the room is a room where you've never been allowed to go in and it's been locked. You've been able to look through the keyhole if you look at our at our, um, our uh, what's that called, the image that we use for the series, it's kind of like you can look inside and you can see that there's wondrous things in there, but you can't go in, you can't really see what's going on in there. So he's about to hand you the key as you go into this, what I'm calling a room of marvels. And as you're about to go in there, he holds out the key, but then he, he says, you really should be careful. And so he says, if you dare go in, here's a warning for you. And found in that warning is our hope. 
All right, so let's hear the introduction to the book. Emblems of the Infinite King, Enter the Knowledge of the Living God, by J. Ryan Lister, illustrated by Anthony M. Benedetto. Introduction, the gift of the keys. Pick up the key and open the lock. His strong and wise command cut through the empty silence as he reached out of the shadows to offer an ancient key. I am the key keeper. I have come to show you the way, but before you do anything, heed this warning. Those who turn this key will never be the same. It will show your deepest guilt and display your darkest shame. You will see who you were made to be and what you've really become. But only if you turn the key will you find your story isn't done. That the way ahead is the path that leads into the throne room of the sun, this one they call the death killer who gives his life to pay your ransom. If you so choose, pick up the key, open the lock. If you do, you will not be alone. I will walk with you and guide you. I will meet you on the other side. Everything changed with the turn of a key. What the key keeper says about sound doctrine, uh, about going into that room, is what the Bible teaches about sound doctrine. It runs very counter to, again, what we hear on a daily basis. But here's how the story goes. Here's what you're going to see. You're going to see your deepest guilt and your deepest shame is going to be displayed. You'll see who you've been made to be, but unfortunately, you'll also see what you actually became. Here's where the hope starts coming in. It will show you that your story isn't done in the ultimate hope, and it will show you that the path, show you the path you need to take to the one who paid a ransom for your guilt and shame. That's a story, that's a perspective that is very counter to what we hear on a daily basis. And the reason I'm calling it a room, room of wonders is because once you really see sound doctrine for what it is, once you see a biblical vision of our world and of our creation and of us and of God and all those things, it is incredible to behold. And it speaks really to what some philosophers call our three primary longings, our longing for beauty, our longing for goodness, and our longing for truth. And we're all searching for that. So foundational biblical doctrines are, first of all, Beautiful. They're just beautiful. They should stir the imagination. They should stir our souls. When we really see them, we see that there is drama in doctrine. We see that doctrine dances. It tells us a great and epic story. It tells us something that is beautiful, something that's absolutely beautiful, because it reflects on the one that defines beauty. Psalm 27, one thing I ask from the Lord, this only do I seek, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, 
to, gain on the to gaze on the beauty of the Lord and to seek him in his temple. We serve a beautiful, beautiful God. And if beauty is not the word that captures your imagination, we serve, you find the word, but it's a word of wonder. It's a word of wonder. But that's not all. Uh, foundational biblical doctrines also speak to our longing for goodness. So they are, they are good. They speak of a longing for goodness. Everyone knows that there is good and evil. Everyone knows it. 10, 15 years ago, we could say, well, in our society, everybody thinks that good and evil is just relative. It's just, uh, it just depends. People don't even say that anymore. I don't know if you've noticed. The world has changed. There is a very clear sense in our world now that there is good and evil. It doesn't align necessarily, in many ways it does, but in many ways it doesn't align with what Christians believe is good and evil, what the Bible teaches good and evil. But there is a definite belief in good and evil. And everyone wants a clear conscience. One of the big terms from this year, not new with this year, but probably used by more people this year, is we want to be on the right side of history. Why? Because we want to have a clear conscience. We want to have a clear conscience. So, there's a deep longing for those things. There's even a deep longing for justice. Because justice means that what is wrong will be made right. What is evil will be made well. And so there's a longing for that in every single one of us. So, the, um, yeah. So, uh, I don't know where I am in my notes. Yeah, can we go back? Yeah, so Exodus 33, 19. Here we, we hear about this longing for goodness as God speaks to Moses, and here's, here's what he says. And the Lord said, and he's going he's gonna to appear to Moses. Moses says, I want to see you. God says, if you see me, you'll, you'll fry. You, you won't survive it, but I'll show you a little bit of me. And then the Lord prepares him. He says, and the Lord said, I will cause all my goodness to pass in front of you. All my goodness. And I will proclaim my name, the Lord, which is Yahweh, in your presence. I'm going to do that. I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I will have compassion. Some have suggested that the road to truth usually travels by way of beauty and goodness. Again, beauty and goodness may not be the term that you would use, but it's something what captures your imagination, what captures your heart. If you're going to get the truth, you're probably going to not go directly towards something that this is truth and you must believe it. It's going to be because it captures your imagination. But beauty and goodness without truth falls short because we have in humanity a longing for truth as much as for beauty and goodness. There's a scene in The Matrix <clears throat> where one of the guys that's been one of the good guys up to that point in the film, all of a sudden you find out he's going to be a betrayer. Um, and uh, if you remember or know the premise to the Matrix is that most of humanity, the vast majority of humans, are in a vegetative state and connected to the supercomputer called the Matrix. Matrix survives, is energized by these vegetative human beings. But vegetative human beings who have nothing to live for die so they put in their minds a reality and connect them all together. So in their minds, they are living the life that you live. But in reality, they're just in a vegetative state. Now, there's these humans um, 
the heroes in the story that are trying to free humanity and expose the matrix. And so this character, this main character, the moment you know he's having dinner with one of the representatives, one of the enforcers of the matrix, and you find out that he's going to betray his friends. And this is what he says as he's looking at that piece of steak. You know, I know this steak doesn't exist. I know that when I put it in my mouth, the matrix is telling my brain that it is juicy and delicious. After nine years, you know what I realize? And he takes a bite of the steak and he says, ignorance is bliss. He'd rather believe the lie. Now, most of us don't watch that scene. Most people in the world do not watch that scene and say, yeah, you know what? As long as I feel good, I don't care if my life is based on lies. Most people don't think that way. (laughs) Yeah, the vast majority of people do not think that way. In that moment in the movie, that character, for everybody watching that movie, becomes a villain. (laughs) That moment. Because we all long for truth. No one wants to live a life based on deception, having been deceived. It's one of our greatest fears to come to the end of our life and all of a sudden realize I've I've been living for the wrong things. I have put value on things. I've, I've considered certain things to be beautiful, good, and true that are not beautiful, good, and true. It's one of our greatest fears. Foundational biblical doctrines speak to the longing for truth because it's the character, it's a character trait of God. He is truth. So this is what Jesus says to the disciples that he's gathered with on the night that he's betrayed. He says, you know the way to the place where I'm going, because they're worried. He says, I'm leaving. And Thomas said to him, Lord, we don't know where you are going, so how can we know the way? Jesus answered, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. If you really know me, you will know my Father as well. For now, from now on, you do know him and have seen him. All right, so for this series, I'm, I'm asking you to make a, a commitment, uh, whether you're here or, or watching online. Don't miss the adventure that this series is going to be. Don't miss any of the sermons. Each week, you're going to have a reading assignment from this book. And in the back of the book, like the very last page, is a scripture index. So you can read a particular chapter that I'll assign and then read the scriptures that are for that chapter. If you don't have the book and you can't get the book for some reason or don't want to get the book for some reason, you can watch the podcast. You can find that on YouTube. That, that I played, and you can, you can listen. You won't have the beautiful illustrations. You won't have the index of Scripture, but you will, you will learn, and it will be uh, impactful. This week, the assignment is to read what you already heard. It's a short introduction to read that. Um, and then if you want to work ahead, feel free to, but each week as we come to a new chapter, go back and read that chapter again. All right, so I want to suggest that. It will be a better way of learning and getting some of this stuff down of what sound doctrine is. Um, You can supplement all this by joining a small group. Jonathan talked about that, our small groups. Most of them are sermon-based, so, you know, in the sermon application guide, those are the questions you're going to be doing. Our daily life is going to be following along with with this as well. 
And if you want to get on Daily Life, you can find it online. You have to do a little searching. Uh, but you can also put it on your communication card, uh, Daily Life, or send an email to office at fiveoakschurch.org and put it in the subject line if you've already filled out your online uh, card, for example. So, end with this. You've been given the gift of the key to enter the knowledge of God. You've been given that. The key is the Word of God. And Paul's words, again, to Timothy make this point. He says, but as for you, continue in what you have learned and have become convinced of, because you know those from whom you learned it, and how from infancy you have known the Holy Scriptures, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. All Scripture is God-breathed and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness so that the servant of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. As you turn the key, and we're going to turn the key eight times in this room of marvels, you're going to be transported into reality, a reality based on God's perspective that we learn from his word. And in that, you're going to find stronger spells That'll help you and the next generation keep the faith in very, very challenging times. Parents, this is an opportunity that I hope you won't miss. And all of us, this series is going to help us better share our faith with a world, a world that is actually very hungry for something that is truly beautiful, something that is truly good, something that is truly true. Don't miss the sermon series. Read the book each week or listen to it. Go even deeper with the small group or with the devotionals, the daily life devotionals. Let's celebrate communion together. It's part of the beauty and the goodness of this story. You know, I go back. By the way, these, these new ones are very difficult to open. After you get the top one off, Go for the next layer. Don't try to tear it off. It will not tear off. Um, like the big plastic underneath will not come off. But I go back to that part of the, of the story where it says, if you enter this room, and the first room is called the throne room, um, and as it works its way through the different turning of the keys and the room changes, it says, as you do that, you're going to learn what you were meant to be, but what you actually became. And you're going to learn about the death killer who paid a ransom for what you became. On the night he, be, he was betrayed, Jesus said to his disciples, this is the ransom. My body is going to be broken for you. Let's eat together. And he also said to his disciples, um, this is a new covenant I have with you. It's a new covenant in my blood. Drink and remember, this is for the remission of your sins. Let's drink together. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that you are a God who reveals, reveals truth about us, uh, truth about you. You don't leave us there. 
You're a God who pursues us, who loves us, a God of wonders. Help us see that wonder, Father. There's so many things competing for our attention, competing for our allegiance, competing for our hearts and our imaginations. Father, help us to pursue you as you pursue us, to come to know you better and to live in that reality more fully. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.